Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So this is week two of our Battleground series. And so this is a series where throughout much of the summer we're looking at what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare. Um, but this is not your grandma's spiritual warfare series. And so we're, we're going to be eventually getting to things that um, we're going to be talking about. What does the Bible say about Satan? That's today. What does he say about demons, how they work, how they operate, how should we interact with them or not interact with them, all of that. And so um, last week we kicked that off. And this week we're going to keep going. Now, I keep telling you we're going to kind of warm our way up. And I guess I need to, after hearing from so many of you this week, um, what I need to clarify is when I say warm us up, I mean, I'm not going to be getting to the demon stuff for a couple of weeks, right? Because I think when we think spiritual warfare, you're automatically going to demons, right? And that's coming. And and that stuff is coming later on. But I'm I'm trying to um, build a framework if you will, so that um, as we go through this series, we're able to think through how does the Bible approach this topic? Because our goal is to ground ourselves in the scripture on this topic. So how does the Bible approach it in the various different aspects? And what, are, what does spiritual warfare look like? Because it's not just demons, right? And so, but we're definitely getting there. Um, so this week we are, we are looking at the, ori- the origin of evil. Where did it come from? Right now, last, last week, we, we looked at the myth of neutrality. You can't be neutral. There's no, there's no middle ground. Um, as 1 John 5, 19, he said, um, we belong to God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So you either belong to God or you're under the power of the evil one. And we talked about what that looks like. So now the question is, who's the evil one? And so that's, that's where we're going this morning. So there's lots of places that we can go to talk about the evil one, the devil, Satan. Um, there's lots of different names for him. I'm gonna pick two main places today and I will have that up on the screen with page numbers. So if you have Bibles you want uh, uh, from the chairs there, I'll have those on the page numbers. But then there's gonna be other places where I'm gonna throw some scripture up, but I don't intend to spend a whole lot of time there. And so um, you certainly are always welcome to flip there. I highly encourage you or to, to go there on your, your tablet or phone. But just know uh, I'm trying to just provide you the page numbers for the places where we're gonna be spending more time. Um, as we are jumping into this, there's a few things I thought, you know, I don't know whether this is worth saying or not. Um, this series is going to be a little more teaching oriented than I typically would do on a Sunday morning. Some of you will appreciate this kind of thing. So when we talk about the origin of evil, when we talk about Satan or the devil, um, there's different names for him. Well, Satan is one of the primary names we use from him. Um, that's actually never used of him. Okay, listen, listen. It's actually never used as, an, as a proper title for the devil in the Old Testament. Oh, okay. So the word Satan simply means accuser or adversary. And it can be used of humans or angelic beings. And it is, it is used of humans in the Old Testament at times when they're standing as an accuser, they're bringing an accusation. And it's used of spiritual beings in the Old Testament as well. Sometimes it's used of good spiritual beings and sometimes it's used of bad spiritual beings. In fact, one time in the story of Balaam and the speaking donkey, right, in Numbers, um, the angel of the Lord which is actually the Lord, is called the Satan because he stands before Balaam to accuse him, okay? So it's not a proper name. It's a, it's a descriptor. Um, the Job account, what about the Satan in Job? Um, in Job, most people don't think that that is actually the person or the being that we think of when we think of Satan or devil. It is a Satan. And they, say, they base that based on the way the Hebrew addresses it. It calls him the Satan, we don't speak like that, right? When we're naming someone, we don't say, the Justin stood up and talked to you today. <laughs> if I did that, you'd be very concerned and you should leave, right? And so, yeah, 
because I can have a conversation with myself in that, in that moment, right? And so the Satan is a, is a title of someone or something that is standing in a particular role. It never actually gets used as a proper title for the being that we're gonna talk about today, the one we know as the devil or Satan. That actually came into, into being by the time Jesus was on the scene, then the, the word Satan uh, started to be used as a proper name for the, the devil, right? But just some of you will appreciate that um, from the Old Testament. It doesn't change anything that we're going to look at today, um, but just know that that's how that word kind of developed, right? Also, it's important to know that um, Satan, the devil, as we're going to look at today, he's a created being, which means he's not God's equal opposite. He's not the equal dark side of God. He is a created being, which means he must submit to God, all right? So we'll, we'll, I'll throw a few other tidbits in there that if I, if I was in a classroom, maybe we would go more into depth, but I'm trying to stay focused on some of these verses. But here's where we're going to go this morning, ultimately. As we talk about the devil, the devil rebelled against God, and he attempts to lead others to rebel against God. It's very straightforward. I, I, sometimes I try to get creative, but there's nothing to be creative about here. It, if you walk away with this today, then I think you're walking away with what I, I hope you're going to understand about Satan and how this fits into spiritual warfare. The devil rebelled against God. And he attempts to lead others to rebel against God. And so uh, I'm going to show you Genesis 3, the, the place where the devil, and I'll show you why we think it's the devil, uh, where he deceived Adam and Eve. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at the temptation of Jesus. Those are the two places we're going to spend most of our time today. But along the way, I want to try to at least say, hey, this is where we get this idea about the devil, by the way. And then let you then go and, and dig on that. The devil rebelled against God. And he attempts to lead others to rebel against God. All right, so let's go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 3, page 2 of your Bible. And the first thing we're going to see is the devil is a deceiver. And now I keep using that word devil. And that word, that name for the devil simply means slanderer. He's the one who, who slanders. He blasphemes, right? He, 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 he calls names. So Satan means accuser or adversary. Devil means sl slanderer. The devil is a deceiver. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's start with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, pause there for a moment. So we've got this serpent. Now this, this doesn't matter if you've been in church or not your whole life or one day, you've likely heard this story, right? This is, this is the story of the fall of Christianity, uh, of the world that Christianity tells. Now it starts with the serpent. Now, nowhere in this story, and I'm, I'm pointing this out to you because this is the teacher in me. Well, I'm pointing this out to you because we tend to read into the text what we've always been taught and we don't see what's actually there or not there. And I want you to see what's there and not there so that as you continue to study the scriptures on your own, you're seeing things that are in the text or not in the text and you're, you're, you're paying attention to what you bring to the text. Nowhere in Genesis chapter three in this story are we told that this is the devil. Nowhere is the serpent described as Satan in Genesis chapter three. We get that from somewhere else. In Genesis three, he's only the serpent, right? And so I'll, I'll show you where we get that, so uh, that it's Satan. So we have to go all the way to the last book of your Bible, Revelation. And that's where we have Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, and also 20, verse two. And it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, so likely a reference back to the garden, the serpent in the garden, who is called the devil and Satan 
the deceiver of the world. That's where we get to piece those together, right? Because, because we're, we're looking at what the scripture says as a whole about it. Or chapter 20, verse two, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. That's where we piece that together, okay? So back in Genesis though, we're told there's a serpent. All right, so the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's worth pointing out the Lord God made him, okay? So we're dealing with, we're dealing with create, created being here. And if it's a created being, then he has to be subject to the Lord. I, I'm gonna drive that home because new age theology and Eastern theology from other religions are seeping into Christianity constantly. And one of the things that seeps in is this idea of equal light and darkness. There is no equal about it. There is no equal darkness to God's light. There is only creation who has rebelled against God and therefore is living in darkness. But they are not equal to God. If God created then they are subject to him. And so this being, the serpent, as we just saw in Revelation, Satan, the devil, he is a created being. Now, when did he rebel? We don't actually know. Okay, so some of you have this kind of, you would ask me this later. I'm switching to a hand mic at this point so we don't keep popping. Um, Jimmy, this is gonna be wireless six. Check, check. All right, it's gonna, gonna change me up a little bit. All right, so... Um, so when did he fall? We don't know. We know that Genesis chapter one, God created all things. And after he was uncreating, he said, it is all very good. Okay. So we know that if Satan is a created being, then he was originally created good. Okay. That's where we get that. We, we draw conclusions that if God created all things, then at the end of his creation, he said, it was all very good. Sometime after that, and before the, the time in Genesis chapter three in the garden, Satan rebelled. That's all we really can pinpoint. I mean, we can speculate beyond that about when it was, you can speculate. Okay, there you go. Um, we can speculate about when it was, but we don't really know when it actually happened. And it doesn't really matter because what matters is he rebelled and he's leading others to rebel. Now, bef before we go any further, let me show you one other spot uh, from the Old Testament. We're not gonna dig into it, but I want you to be aware of it. It's from Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 and 14. This is actually a lament, or uh, we would call it a funeral dirge. It's, it's what they would sing at a funeral of a king, the king of a town or a city called Tyre. And there's things about this song and describing this king that seem to go a little bit beyond the king, a human king, and seems to be referencing or at least pulling on something more spiritual in nature. And this is where, what we see in Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day, you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. That's a type of angel, a good angelic being, right, that we oftentimes hear about. But here we have him being described as you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, a place a way of talking about being in God's presence in the midst of the stones of fire you walk. So we, we oftentimes will draw from this that Satan is an angel and the type of angel he is is a cherub. And that he, uh, a cherub, by the way, oftentimes you see the, in the scriptures, cherubs are the types of angels that guard God's throne room. And you think about what kind of angel did God put at the uh, entrance to Eden when he cast Adam and Eve out? A cherub. Why? Because a cherub was a guardian type of angel. And so... 
if this is a reference to Satan, and, and it seems like it's at least alluding to that, the, the serpent in the garden, he was an angel. He took on the form of a serpent. That's where we would get that, by the way. That, that's the only place we would get that, which is why we have to, to be light on, on how much we're gonna stand on because some of our theology and our understanding about who Satan is and what he does is more based on tradition than it is the scriptures. But this is, this is the place we would go to say, it seems like Satan was once a good angel rebelled against God, okay? All right, so back to, to Genesis chapter one. He is more crafty God and made him. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So uh, the, the, the temptation, the deception begins. And where Satan, the, the serpent begins is he says, did God actually say? He starts to call into question and plant seeds of doubt about what God has said. And all the things that we're going to see this morning, the way that Satan tempts people and deceives people, it still happens today. So when we read this in Genesis 3, I don't want us to sit here and go, well, if I was there, it wouldn't have happened that way. It would have. And it, it might have even been worse for some of us, right? This is how Satan works, and this is at the root of all temptation. This is what he does. Did God actually say? He causes us, he leads us to start to doubt what God has actually said. Now, if Satan can get us to doubt that God actually said something, or even just to get us to miss a part of it, then he has an opening for, for him to start inserting what he wants us to believe instead. He has a way to start changing our thinking about God. Did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, notice what, what Satan does. Now, you would have to go back to Genesis chapter 2 to read what God actually said. But he said, God says to, to Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is both permission and freedom in God's instructions to Adam. You may, you may eat of any tree in the garden. And then there's also law, except for this one tree. But look what Satan does. He diminishes the, the freedom that God had, had given to Adam and Eve. When, when God said, you may eat of any tree of the garden except one. But Satan then just goes and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree? He just takes away God's freedom and permission and his goodness and instead frames God as someone who is restrictive and prohibitive and doesn't want you to experience any happiness or joy. Did God really say you can't eat of any of them? Well, no, that's not what God actually said, but Satan's now planting that for the woman, for Eve. All right, we're going to keep going. We're going to see verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So the woman gets it kind of right. It's not, it's not exactly right, but, but you know, that's, that's fine. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, yes. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, yes. But then she added, neither shall you touch it. God never said anything about touching it. See, she has already done what is the tendency of humanity is God sets a, a standard and then we go beyond that standard, which is, by the way, where you get legalism. You, you, you have a standard that's higher than God's standard. And when you create a standard or, let's say, a fence around God's standard, maybe, maybe the intentions are good, right? I, I don't even want to come close to breaking God's standards and God's law, so I'm going to build a fence. I'm going to create a new standard that's even stricter than God. Let that set for a minute. And then I'm going to make that standard like it's law. And whether I break it or anyone else breaks it, 
then we are going against God. That's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were guilty of. She said, neither shall you touch it. Now, if Satan can get us to, to go beyond God's standard, now we, we've created legalism. We're gonna find out later in one of the messages that legalism is actually a demonically influenced thing. Okay, so neither shall you touch it. He, let's go on, verse three. But this, I'm sorry, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now, whereas before Satan just reframed what God has said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Did, did, did God really say? Now he's just outright denying and opposing what God has said. God said, you will surely die. And he says, you're not surely going to die. You see, because now what Satan's doing with Eve is he's taking away the consequence of sin. He's, he's removing the punishment of sin. God said, the day you, you, you disobey him in this way, here's the consequence. No, that's not going to be the consequence. And so as soon as he starts to take away the consequence for sin and your mind, now that's another wall dropped. Well, okay, well, if he's not going to do that. And maybe we might find ourselves as we're being deceived in, in a similar way, we might say, well, I did it that one time and nothing happened. So perhaps if I do it again, nothing right? And, it, and it's not so much that nothing happened. It's just that maybe it's not what we expected happened. Maybe we don't see the impact. See, there's times where, where we will sin and we will give ourselves permission to sin, to disobey God, and we think nobody else knows. Nobody else is going to be hurt by this. It's not impacting them. It's not impacting them. It's just me on my own time. And yet, we're unaware of the way that it's hardening our heart toward the Lord towards family members, towards friends. We're, we're unaware or we, we can't see that it's causing us to be isolated and to cut ourselves off from those that God is calling us to be a part of their lives, right? We, we just don't see it coming down like a hammer on us. And that's, quite honestly, that's God's patience with us. But Satan just right out opposes it. For, for God knows, instead, he says, you're not surely gonna die, but instead God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God. So now Satan goes a step further after opposing God's word. He even makes disobeying God's word sound like a blessing. No, God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That sounds good, especially today, right? We, we wanna be enlightened. We, wanna, we, wanna, we don't wanna operate on old ancient things. We wanna, we wanna be progressive. We, we want to keep up with what's going on, and we want to be people who are known as being enlightened. This is not, this, there's nothing going to be new here, right? God knows that you eat it, your eyes are going to be open, and then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He makes it sound like a blessing. You see, because if Satan, when he deceives, if he can get somebody to disobey God, one of the ways he can do that is You'll actually be blessed if you do this. I know you think, I know you think because you grew up in Christianity at a Christian church that this is not the choices you should make. But I'm here to tell you that those people have just been oppressing you all these years. And actually, you'll be happier when you do this. You'll no longer be denying who you are. This is what it sounds like. This is what it sounds like to oppose God's word and then to even present it like there's actually going to be a blessing here. He says, and then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, being like God is what we all want in our sinfulness. It, it, it's, it's this pride that's at the root of, of much of our sinfulness is, I think I can do things better than God. 
I think I can make decisions better than God makes decisions. I think I could run the world better than God runs the world. I think I could run your life better than God runs your life. You think you could run my life better than God runs my life. We all do this. And then when we start to make decisions and we're making decisions that oppose God's word or God's standard, we are elevating ourselves above God and we're saying, that's not good enough for me, God. I can do better than that. You're not considering me, God. I can do better. And so Satan oftentimes will deceive similar to this scenario where he will flat on oppose God's word. God's word doesn't say that. And today it might sound like this. God's word doesn't say that. That was written by human authors. They made mistakes, conspiracy cover-ups, right? Um, that, that was written for that time. That, that was for that time, but, but we've progressed now. Okay, I'm, I'm throwing key words in here because I hope you look those up. All right, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, uh, knowing good and evil, it's not, it's not so much that Adam and Eve didn't already know good and evil. They did. Otherwise, the command not to touch would have been pointless. Uh, the command not to eat would have been pointless, right? They, they were able to distinguish between what God has said and what would be a disobedience, right? They, they knew that. Um, when this phrase is used, knowing good and evil, it's not about knowing right from wrong. It's about divine wisdom, being like God. That's, that's the gist of it. And that's why it's linked with this phrase. You will be like God. What does that look like? Knowing good and evil. It's a divine type of wisdom that Satan is trying to sell them. All right, verse six. So what happens? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was standing with her and he ate. So the woman sees the fruit. And so here's, here's what's transpired. The word of God is caused, he calls her to doubt. Did God really say? Then he reframes it. You won't surely die. He flat out opposes God's word. You won't surely die. Sells it like it's a blessing. God knows that you'll be like him. You'll be enlightened. And as she is taking this in and as she is being deceived, it leads to when the woman saw the tree that was, it was good for food, she starts to justify now, it's good for food. Now, let's think about this for a minute. God said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one tree. Every tree in the garden except this one tree. But that tree's good for food. No, every tree in the garden you may eat except for this one tree. She has now started to justify her sin with a legitimate need. I'm hungry. God gave me that desire. I'm hungry. That tree has food. It looks good for food. So, so sometimes what Satan will get us to do, and we're going to see this with Jesus in just a moment too, is he takes a legitimate need that we have. I want to be loved. I want to be fed. I want to, I'm thirsty, so I want to drink something, right? He takes legitimate needs that we have, and then he encourages us to meet them in illegitimate ways or with illegitimate things. And so she sees that it's good for food. That's a legitimate need. I'm hungry. But she's, she's looking for that food now from the tree that God said, don't eat of that tree. And then she says, and it was a delight to the eyes. And so in 1 John chapter 2, um, you get these phrasings where, where John tells us about um, the lust of the flesh, the, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, right? And, and you kind of see that, that here. It was a delight to the eyes. She sees it. She wants it. That's lust, right? That, that is just simply, I'm lusting after something that I cannot have. That's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. And so she wants it. It was a delight to her eyes. Um, sin is fun. 
Okay, there's, there's not a person in here who, when, when you choose to sin, not a person in here does that because you feel it's your duty to do that. You sin out of desire. We all do. We sin because it feels good. We want to do that based on who we are in our nature because of how sin has impacted us. Nobody goes, well, I'm just going to go do my duty today and sin, right? But that's the way we approach God instead. Instead of approaching God out of desire for knowing God and enjoying God, we approach God, well, it's my duty, so I'm going to read. It's my duty, so I'm going to pray, right? It's a delight to the eyes. And so she, she set her eyes on it. It's something that she can't have. God has said, this is not for you, but now she wants it. And it became a delight to the eyes, which is about lusting after it. And then the tree, she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And, and so this is, this is the, the, the lust of the flesh is just, I want more than what I have. I, I want greater knowledge. I, I want to be like God. I want that I can't have. And so she desires that. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was standing with her and he ate. So some of you would always point out to me that Eve's the one to fall ultimately. But yeah, but her husband was standing right there with her. And then in the New Testament, Adam gets all the blame. Okay, so because of Adam's sin, sin came into the world, death through sin. All right, so that was a quick summary of the devil is a deceiver. Right? He, he, he has ways where he just causes us to question the word of God, which, which means we've got to know the word of God. Okay? The way that the devil tempted and deceived Eve in the garden is the same way he does things today. Causes us to doubt the word of God, reframes it in a different way, uh, causes us to think that there's actually a blessing in disobeying God, and just outright opposes God's word. And then we get our hearts set on that which we can't have, which is not ours, and then that's what we go after. That's what we go after. Before we move on to, to the New Testament, I want to show you two other verses just about the devil. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3, uh, some of his comments on what happened in the garden. He says to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, the devil is a deceiver. By his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was concerned that the devil would deceive just like he did in the garden. And part of that deception means leading us astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's his goal. Because that, that's, that's what he's done in rebelling against God. And so now the devil has rebelled against God and he attempts to get others to rebel against God. And then John eight forty four. I, I love this verse for a different reason. I'll tell you here in a second. Jesus says this to the religious leaders of the day. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. First off, I, I love this verse because sometimes we want to point out that Jesus was so loving and kind and compassionate toward everyone. And we quote those words like Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judge. And, you know, Jesus also said things like, you're of your father, the devil, right? And, and, and your will is to do your father's desires. Um, so um, some of you, if you've been here for a couple years, you know that um, we had two chaplains from Tinker come out um, from, from the old team that I was a part of. One of them was Chaplain Joyner. He got up and spoke. Um, if you've met him, he leaves a lasting impression on you. But one of the things that stood out with me for Chaplain Joyner is this was his favorite verse. 
And he would just say to me sometimes, sometimes I just want to quote to these people, you're of your father, the devil. And he says, you know, we put on, we put on coffee mugs verses like, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not harm you. Or we put on there, uh, no weapon formed against you will prosper. He says, I'd like to see a mug that has you are of your father, the devil. And so when he left Tinker, I sent him a mug that I created that has this verse on it. <laughs> And he was drinking coffee from him one day, and he texts me. He says, I'm drinking from my favorite mug. And there in the picture, you are of your father, the devil. Anyway, so the devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. All right, let's jump to the New Testament here. Luke chapter 4. Now, we're looking at Jesus' temptation, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 4 and also Luke chapter 4. I'm picking Luke this morning because you're probably more familiar with Matthew. And I want to put something else before you that you're maybe less familiar with. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, page 673. So the first thing we see is the devil is a deceiver. Now we're going to see he's a tempter. Luke chapter 4. So Jesus comes on the scene, full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, beginning being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, there's some significance to Jesus's temptation in that he's very intentionally led into the wilderness for 40 days. The first Adam was, was, was tempted and he fell. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years because they were disobedient to God. They failed to trust him. Now you get Jesus, who is the second and last Adam. He is the true Israel. He is the representative for humanity. And now he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. It all corresponds because of what Jesus' mission was. So he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now for 40 days. Now, he wasn't just tempted at the end when we get the three temptations that we're going to look at. Those are sample temptations. He was being tempted by the devil this entire time. Now, notice something, though. When we are, when we are engaging in spiritual warfare, this is oftentimes overlooked by people in our circles, Jesus was not eating. He ate nothing. He fasted for 40 days. Sometimes we are tempted to think, well, that was for Jesus. That was for people in that day. We don't fast now. But every time Jesus instructed his followers about fasting, he didn't say, by the way, I want you to fast. He just assumed you would be doing it. And so he would say, when you fast. And what fasting is at its root is depriving ourselves, denying ourselves of something that we need or want so that we are physically deprived and therefore focusing on spiritual things so that we are becoming more dependent upon God because we're becoming more aware of our need and dependence upon God. Fasting is a key component to resisting the devil. Key component. What does that look like? It can look many different ways. Um, just by way of example, um, for me personally, in 2014, I came to the conviction that every Sunday morning that I preach, I fast. And so since 2014, every Sunday morning, I don't eat. I drink, I drink coffee, that's it, because it's coffee, right? And, but I don't eat. Now, if I'm not preaching, I'll eat that day. Why? Because I want to be, when I'm, when I'm here and I'm doing this, I want to be as tuned in as I possibly can. I want to be as dependent as I possibly can so that when I get up, that I am, I am able to hear the voice of the Lord, whatever way he's leading, that I can, I can communicate as clearly as possible. That's a conviction I came to in 2014. Now, beyond that, um, there's been seasons of my life, and, and Lindsay, Lindsay's included, where we will fast maybe once one day a week, where we might take a whole 24-hour fast. 
right? Just liquids or something like that, right? Um, and the point in doing that is drawing closer to the Lord, becoming more dependent upon the Lord. Or when there's major decisions to be made, when there's major life directions that are going to take place, um, it's a good thing to consider fasting as you're making those decisions. Why? So that I can hear from the Lord more clearly. If he's, if he's trying to guide me and lead me, I want to hear from him as clear as possible. And so I'm going to deprive myself of things that I may need or want, food in, in most cases, right? So that I can become more dependent upon him spiritually. So fasting doesn't make me more spiritually mature just because I do it. It's a tool to help me know the Lord more, right? And so we've talked about fasting off and on throughout the years here. And I'll just say, I know some of you guys, maybe you can't fast food because of health-related reasons, but there's other things you can fast. And I would encourage you, try it, experiment with it. Once a week, one meal, two meals, um, you know, skip, skip breakfast two days a week or whatever. Or, you know, if there's something you find that, hey, I really enjoy this, I really like this, hey, maybe one day a week I'm going to not go with that and I'm going to use the times where I, I want that, I'm going to turn my attention to the Lord. Lord, is there anything you want to say to me today? Is there any way you're leading me that I'm, I'm not aware of? Fasting is a key component to spiritual warfare. Jesus, for 40 days, he was being tempted. He fasted. He ate nothing. All right, we're going to look at these temptations, though. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, as written, man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, so if you are the son of God, there's different ways in the Greek language to, dis, to uh, construct a conditional sentence, if you are. Um, some of the ways it's written, you, you, you know that they don't believe it. If you are, and I don't really believe it. And then another way that it's written, it's if you are, and I'm assuming that it's true. Okay, based on the way this one is written, the way that the devil is phrasing this, or at least Luke as he's capturing it is, if you are the son of God, and I'm gonna assume that you are, Okay, so I say that because the next thing I want to say is this is a good opportunity for me to point out that the devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He does not know all things. He cannot be everywhere at one time. He is a created being. He's limited. Okay, how then does the devil know some things? What about this situation where it seems to know things? Well, the devil and his demons have been around for a very long time and they're great observers. And humanity has really not changed. And so over the course of centuries, centuries, they have observed and observed. And so they know what humans like to do and what, what will get them. But don't get in your mind that Satan is omniscient. That means he would be like God. He does not know all things. He's not everywhere present. He cannot be over in Middle East influencing things here and at the same time tempting you. Right? He's limited, but he has a vast army. But here he says, if you are the son of God. Now, he likely knows that Jesus is because at this point, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. There is this voice that came out of heaven. This is my beloved son and him I'm well pleased. Satan has ears. So he would have heard that. He would have seen this. It would have gotten to him. So he knows there's something different about this guy. He knows that this is, this is what, um, what God is doing in, in Jesus. But Satan also, listen, Satan doesn't know all things, which means he knows what's in the Bible but he doesn't know what's, what, what God is about that's not in the Bible, okay? He doesn't have a special secret knowledge about what God is doing that you and I don't have available to us. He's limited, but he knows the Bible. So he says, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He has a legitimate need. He's hungry. Satan's going after the legitimate need, but encouraging him to meet that need in an illegitimate way. 
Same with the garden, right? A legitimate need. I'm hungry. I need this. And yet, here's how Satan's going to influence you to do that illegitimate ways. Well, I'm going to get it from this. I'm going to find love here. I'm going to find love there. I'm going to overeat. I'm going to overdrink. Whatever it is, right? Command the stone to become bread. So he's trying to get Jesus to, to stop depending upon God and instead to take matters into his own hands, which is what he wants us to do all the time. Stop depending upon God and do it your own way. Now, Jesus is God, which means Jesus could have turned that stone to bread if he wanted to. He absolutely could. But when Jesus incarnated, when he became um, in the flesh, he willingly chose to not operate in all of his attributes of God. There are things that Jesus chose, the Son of God chose, when, when he came in human form that he would not operate in. That would be his right as God. For instance, taking on a body limited Jesus because God is spirit. He's not limited by a body, right? And, and there's times where Jesus would say, hey, I don't even know this. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Even though he could have done all of those things, he chose to be dependent upon the Father. This is right out of Philippians chapter two, where even though he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality with God something he had to maintain but instead he humbled himself, taking on the form of humanity. He could have fed himself any number of ways, but to do so would have, become, would have been to become dependent upon himself apart from depending upon God. Anytime the devil can get us to depend upon ourselves, do something in our own strength and stop depending upon God, he has a victory. Right. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. There's greater things that we must depend upon God for. So every one of these temptations, and you know this, Jesus is going to respond with the word of God, which is going to tell us something. We cannot engage in spiritual warfare without knowing the word of God. He can't. Because Satan will cause you to doubt it, he'll oppose it, or he'll convince you that it says something that it doesn't say. So look at this next one. Verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. We looked at this one briefly last week. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. So it's in Satan's authority to give it to Jesus. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So now Satan is trying to get Jesus to worship something that's created. Okay, this is idolatry. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no images, right? And so Satan's going right at that. Just worship me. And now, now, if Jesus will worship Satan, then Satan's offering to give Jesus something that is rightfully his. Psalm 2, that, that, uh, Psalm 2 God says, um, I will give you the nations. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. He's talking about the son of God, right? Ask of me and I will give the nations to you. They're Jesus's but they're currently in the authority of Satan. And Jesus has come to be the savior of the world. But Satan's saying, if you worship me, I'll give them to you. It's my right to give them to you. But if Jesus worships Satan in order to get the kingdoms of the world, then he would forego the cross. Therefore, not taking care of the sin problem, not judging all of these rebellious beings as he will in the cross. And so sometimes the way Satan gets at us is he offers us things that we might even think, I deserve that. It's mine it rightfully belongs to me, right? And he might encourage us to, to get those things by going around God's plan and instead worshiping him, 
or ourselves. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter if we worship ourselves or we worship him, as long as we're not worshiping God. Every human being is a worshiper. We were created to worship. And if you think, well, I don't worship God, well, you worship something. We either worship God or we're worshiping his creation. That's the only alternative. And so Satan tries to get him to worship him. Jesus says, again, it is written, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, combating Satan's temptation with know the word of God says. The last one, verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. So now Satan is saying this, for it is written. Satan's quoting scripture. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91 and Satan quotes it accurately. Satan knows scripture and he quotes it accurately, but he misapplies it. He misapplies it. So he tells Jesus, hey, throw yourself down. Go to this high point, throw yourself down and Basically, force God into delivering you because this is what the scripture says. He'll command his angels concerning you. So the temptation here is um, manipulate God, impose upon God what you want God to do. Put yourself in a situation that forces God to do something miraculous in order for him to prove himself as God. And so Jesus says in verse 12, he answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. That's again from Deuteronomy 6. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So on this last temptation, let me say this. There are lots of people who quote scripture and quote it accurately. Instagram memes can capture scripture accurately. It's the commentary you gotta be careful of. It's what people say about those verses or what they use those verses to justify or to encourage you to do. That's what you have to be careful of. Because if you don't go back to the scripture and say, well, what did it actually mean? He will command his, his angels concerning you. What was the context? And is this a right way to apply it? This happens all the time. Because we think if there's scripture, it's biblical. It's not. Anybody can use scripture. Almost every cult that you can think of at some point uses the Bible, a scripture from the Bible, to justify some of their wrong beliefs or their wrong actions. You can make, I said it last week, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Pick a verse here, put it together with this verse here, and then say, see, therefore, God wants me to do this. That's why it's important to study the scriptures in context. That's why we've got to know the word of God because Satan knows the word of God better than any one of us. He knows it better than any one of us. He's he's been around far longer than any one of us. And he can quote it accurately and he can use it to say, now here's what this means. Here's why you can use this Bible verse to justify chasing your happiness. Here's why you can use this Bible verse to justify the sinful decision you want to make. And so Satan is a tempter. Now, as we wrap things up, and I flew through those because my goal is to just expose us to Here's this evil one. This is the the one who we belong to God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's the evil one. 
So we, we talk about temptation, and we might be tempted by, the scripture has at least three categories, our flesh, the world, and the devil. Our flesh is who we are uh, impacted by sin. That's my, my, my desires that come from my heart, my mind, my physical body, right? Because I'm impacted by sin. That's the flesh. The flesh does a really good job at leading our lives, right? Satan probably doesn't have to do much with most of us because our flesh takes care of that. We give into that. But then there's the world. And we saw last week that this is not the globe. This is the system of operating that is opposed to God in this world. And we saw last week that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if we're being influenced to sin by the world, we're indirectly being influenced by Satan. And then there is Satan himself, which means him or his demons, right? His army. And that's what we're focusing on today. So I'm trying to build this framework to understand how does spiritual warfare take place? Now, the temptation is we walk out of here today and we, we say, I'm fearful of Satan. How can anyone stand up against him? I'm not Jesus. I'm more like Adam, right? We don't want to leave here today if we're a child of God, afraid of Satan, because Satan's a created being and he has to be subject to God, his creator. We are actually higher created beings than Satan is. We are made with the very image of God. But I want to put these verses, these would be good for memorization, because Satan will come at us, and anytime we experience thought patterns that line up with doubting the word of God, anytime we have thought patterns that try to justify meeting legitimate needs by illegitimate means, anytime we have thought patterns that want to demand of God to prove himself to us, we're being influenced by Satan whether indirectly or directly. These are some good verses. One, Jesus taught his followers how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Part of that prayer is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, deliver me from the evil one. I'm being tempted. Listen, temptation itself is not a sin. The temptation itself is not the sin. Every one of us is tempted. Jesus was tempted. Temptation's not the sin. It's when we give in to the temptation. It's, it's when I start to justify why I'm going to give into that temptation. And that can be mental, that can be heart attitude, and that can be physical. Temptation's not the sin. Temptation just means that there's a battle going on. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Or John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says to his followers before he's going to be handed over to Judas, my Judas, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world. That's a reference to Satan. We saw that last week. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That's amazing. Jesus says, the devil, the ruler of this world, he's coming, but he has no claim on me. Guess what? Those who are in Christ can claim the very same thing. I'm in Christ, therefore the devil has no claim on me. Any influence he has is likely influence I'm giving. And then lastly, 1 John 4, verse 4 John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. Believer in Christ, you're given the Spirit of God at the moment of your salvation. That Spirit stays with you. He never leaves you. That Spirit is God himself indwelling in you. He is greater. He is greater than the Spirit that is in the world. And so when you find yourself being tempted and Satan is trying to deceive you, these are verses that can help us combat those temptations because the devil rebelled against God and he attempts to lead others to rebel against God. He doesn't care how you rebel. He just wants you to rebel. This is spiritual warfare. 
And, and, and it's not likely spiritual warfare in the way we typically are looking for it. So every time that you and I are tempted, it's either the flesh, my just desires because I'm impacted by sin, and the, and the Spirit's working on us on that, right? And so we've been made new in Christ. We're given new natures, new desires that come with that, a new heart. And the Spirit of God helps and guides us as we live. But then there's the world and there's the devil, and both of those are either directly or indirectly influenced by the devil, and he rebelled against God, and he wants to get others to rebel against him also. So the more we can become aware of how does that look, how does it look? I can remember one time someone who, they had, they had been in a marital affair, and not, not here, and um, they said, the devil made me do it. Well, that's likely a compound. But indirectly, perhaps he's right. Because you bought into a lie somewhere along the way, like Eve did. It, he, you saw that it was good for food. You saw this other woman, and you saw that she was good for meeting your desires. You bought into the lie of, a, of legitimate needs and desires, and you met them in illegitimate ways. That's an influence by Satan. Now, was he actually there behind you going, do it, do it, do it? Not likely. Because remember, he's limited. Right? He can't be everywhere present. But... Just because he can't be there necessarily every situation, his demons are working the same way. The world that he has constructed that is opposed to God is influencing us the same way. You deserve that. You're, you deserve better. You deserve happiness. That's not wrong. That's just people trying to oppress who you really are. You were made this way. Right? All of those lies are lies that Satan has influenced this world, and this world influences us, and we can't get out of it. Jesus says you're in the world, but don't be of it. And so we have to be able to recognize how this looks. And so, Lord, help us to see it. Lord, help us to see it. And strengthen us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Lord. Remind us that just as Satan has no claim on Christ, as someone who is in Christ, he has no claim on me. And if there's someone here this morning who is not in Christ, God, show them this morning. Show them that they might turn, as we saw last week, turn from darkness and to God, turn from the power of Satan and to God. As they entrust themselves to what Jesus has done on our behalf, he endured the temptation and he was victorious. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and then he died a death on behalf of sinful people, rose from the dead three days later to a newness of life that he now gives to those who trust in him. God, would you show them their need for your Savior, Christ, and strengthen us as a, as a, a congregation, as a group of people that we might recognize the tactics of the enemy and that we might resist them.